Um, you can turn in your Bibles with me um, to Genesis chapter 21. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, just uh, go ahead and put up your hand. Um, we want you to have God's Word open on your lap. Uh, I have nothing for you. Um, all I have is God's Word, and so we want to come together uh, to the truth of Scripture. Um, Genesis 21, coming into the second half of the chapter, and i got to admit, as I was reading through this, um, this is a weird piece of Scripture. This is an odd little addition here. On, on one side, um, the first half of chapter 21, we have the, the birth of Isaac, like this climax. We've been driving toward this since the beginning of chapter 12, waiting for this promised child, and he's finally here. Chapter 22 uh, is the actual climax of the whole narrative of Abraham. It's God asking Abraham to sacrifice his promised son. And then plopped in the middle is this little thing with Abimelech and an argument over a well. And I'm like, Lord, what are you doing? Why is this here? Why is there this little blurb in between these mountaintop scriptures? And frankly, what am I supposed to do with this? And so I wrestled hard over this passage this week. Um, Jared was texting me, John, how's it going? I was like, pray for me. I don't know what to do with this. I'm stuck. Um, and yet I love God's word. Because if we weren't working verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible, guess who's skipping this text? <laughs> like, I'm just not going to do the work. Because it, there's great, beautiful passages on either side. But we can't skip it. This is God's word. All scriptures breathed out by God. All scriptures profitable for us. And so I'm forced to bear down and do the hard work. And wouldn't you know it, um, there's gold here as well. Um, God has something for us here. There's a reason this is plopped here. And, and I think as we work our way through this, what we'll see is, is, is this is Abraham's faith working its way out uh, in the world around him. The first half of chapter 21 is Abraham's faith in his own heart, in his own home. Um, now it's moving outward. Now it's coming into the rest of the world as he's walking before the Lord. And so let me just, let's read this, this section together and, and then we'll unpack it. Um, chapter 21, starting in verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in whatever you do. Now, therefore, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me or my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you shall deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham provided, uh, sorry, reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know uh, who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And he said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, the place will be called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. And so they made a covenant at Beersheba. 
When Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, and Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that every word, uh, every verse uh, is your truth, is part of your word for us that is sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness, um, that it is profitable to us. God, thank you for your faithfulness. God, would you be at work this morning as we pause to look at this um, out-of-the-way little passage. Lord, would you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law? Would you be at work in our hearts? Would you open our deaf ears and soften our hard hearts? God, be shaping us, forming us into the image of Christ this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we are sometime after the birth of Isaac. Um, We don't really have hard dates here, uh, but Isaac has come, uh, and Abimelech, the king of Gerar, approaches Abraham. Um, And I think this is the the first thing we see here, verses 20 to 24, is is this example, this reminder um, to show your faith. Show your faith. If you remember from chapter 20, Abraham has already had a run-in with Abimelech. These gentlemen know each other. Um, Abraham journeyed into Abimelech's territory, into the area of Gerar, and as Abraham was prone to do, he lied. He lied. He, he told Abimelech that Sarah was his sister rather than his wife. He did this to protect himself, and, um, and, and Abimelech took Sarah then into his harem. Now, the Lord protected Sarah and, and appeared to Abimelech in a dream. Um, terrifyingly, he says to Abimelech, you're a dead man because this woman is, is another man's wife. And his only way to be saved was to return her and to ask Abraham uh, to pray for him. And so as soon as Abimelech woke the next morning, he went to Abraham. Uh, Not only did he return his wife, uh, but he gave Abraham generous gifts. And he told Abraham, you are welcome to stay here, live in the land. Uh, Again, the the timing's not clear. This might be months later. This might be years later. Um, I I suppose at least nine months later because uh, Sarah has become pregnant and given birth to Isaac. And and Abimelech and the commander of his army named Phicol, they've come now to Abraham and they want to make a treaty. They want to make this ongoing peace agreement um, to, to live together in harmony. And the reason they want to do this is not left for speculation. It's clear. Verse 22, they say to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. And so then we want to live in harmony with you. They can see God's blessing on the life of Abraham. And they want to live in harmony, not at odds with him. Uh, it's a little bit comical. It's a little bit pointed here. Um, look at the words of Abimelech. Uh, he knows two things about Abraham. He knows that God is with him and that he's not entirely trustworthy. And, and so he says to Abraham, um, promise me that you will not deal falsely with me, that you'll not be treacherous, that you won't lie to me. That's exactly what Abraham had done. And so he's, he's kind of hedging against that. 
And yet Abraham, looking in, can see the favor of God. Uh, Abimelech can see the favor of God on Abraham's life. Somehow he knows. Abraham's prosperity. It's not just good business sense. He's not just a really good farmer. Uh, and, and, and he knows that, that this child in his old age, this wasn't just a freak pregnancy. This is the blessing of God. That Abraham's trust and hope and confidence is not in the same things that Abimelech's is. There's a contrast here. And how does he know these things? Well, some of it he would have figured out um, when the Lord appeared to him in a dream, um, the first encounter. But on top of that, I think it's pretty logical to assume Abraham's talking about it. Abraham is living his faith out in the open. And so as Abimelech and Phicol are looking in, they see how Abraham's life is progressing and, and they, they hear from Abraham, from the people around Abraham, oh, he's a follower of Yahweh. He's, one of, he's, he's the, the one that God chose to, to bless and to bless the world through him. Abraham has this weird life. Like he's not normal. He's a, he's a sojourner, a traveler. He, he, hasn't, he hasn't built a home. He hasn't staked a claim. He's wandering through the land. He doesn't worship the same gods they do. They have all of these different gods that they worship for different things. They call on for different reasons. And, and Abraham doesn't. He stands out, and he's not shy about why he's different. He's also seen Abraham's faith. He's seen Abraham trusting the Lord and Abraham being blessed by the Lord in response. And and so Abraham is showing his faith. And, And I think that's, again, a good reminder, example for us. Do the people around you, do your neighbors, your your coworkers, your friends, People that you rub shoulders with on a regular basis, do they see your faith? Do you stand out? Are you different? And and do they know why you're different? Your words and your life have the the effect on them that that Abraham had on Abimelech. They they come and say, okay, something's going on here. I want a part of that. I want to be close to this. Ah, Now, you might be thinking, easy for you to say, pastor. And you're right. I have a weird existence. My job is in the church. I spend most of my time meeting with believers. And, and that's one of the reasons I spend a lot of time studying at the coffee shop. But it also hasn't always been that way. Um, I was in college trying to pay for tuition, trying to save up money for a wedding. Um, I went to work for a summer on the service rigs in the oil field. And I I've since learned not all crews are this way, but the particular crew I was on, um, just to put it blankly, was um, probably the, the, the most vile and corrupted group of men I've ever been around. Um, they were terrible. Um, and, and so it was a tough place to be. I, I could tell you stories that would make your skin crawl. Um, by God's grace and partly by coincidence, the first day that I walked on the job, walked into the, into the doghouse to meet my new crew, I had my, my lunch in one hand and, and I had my Bible under my arm in the other. And uh, one of the guys jeered, oh, you're not a Christian, are you? I said, yeah, I am. Uh, there it is. Uh, I guess it's out in the open. And, and, and God used that in some amazing ways, but... Um, Particularly, I, I'm the roughneck, so I'm the one that, that 
everybody bosses around, the bottom of the totem pole. And, and so I uh, accumulated a number of nicknames over the course of the summer, most of them not appropriate for church, um, and, but a couple that I'm pretty fond of. Um, the first was Thumper, Bible Thumper. I can own that. Yeah, call me that all day long. Um, the second was Virgin Lips. And uh, they found out I was saving money um, for a wedding. And, of course, they wanted to know every detail of our relationship. And they grilled me on it. And, and what they found is that though Beth and I had been dating for almost three years, um, neither of us had ever kissed anyone. And we had committed together and before the Lord not to kiss until the day we were married. Um, and you're like, that's weird and crazy. I'm like, yeah, it was. Um, also, I think one of the best decisions of our dating. Uh, but it was weird. And, and, they're at, and they, they thought it was weird. And they made fun of me relentlessly for it. And yet, at the end of a work day, on a long drive home, if maybe it's just me and one other guy uh, in the truck, or those kind of very rare, quiet moments, all of a sudden those walls come down. The, the jeering and mocking stops. And the questions come out. Hey, what does God think about? What does the Bible say about? How does your relationship work this way? And, and it opened doors. I'm able to point them to Christ, share the gospel. And all just because I started with my Bible under my arm, engaging conversations here and there, but bringing God's word to bear, just interjecting gently, little comments along the way, sharing what I believed. Chatting about this this uh, yesterday morning with a few guys and just heard some cool stories. Uh, Nathan Cornelson saying, yeah, I drive truck and, and my main contact with my dispatcher. And just a weird happenstance. She said, oh, you're not going to make it home for, for Halloween with this new schedule. Sorry about that. And he said, ah, you know what? Halloween's not really a big deal for our family. Um, we're Christians. Didn't think much of it. Left it at that. Six months later, chatting with the same dispatcher, and she says, okay, why do they call it Good Friday? Can you explain that to me? <laughs> Can you ask for a better gospel opportunity? Please explain Good Friday. Why is it called good? Just, just a little comment. Six months earlier, led to this gospel opportunity. John was telling me, um, sit down with a family at a restaurant and the waitress comes. You know how it is? They always, I don't know if they do it on purpose, but you're about to pray when they come up to check on you like every time. Um, and, and, and John says, I don't know what I, where it came from, but it just happened. I said, hey, we're about to pray. Is there anything we can pray for you about? She opened up and they had opportunity to, to share the gospel with this young lady. Why do we hide these things? Why are we secretive? Live, live your faith out. Let people see that you're different and, and, and tell them why you're different. People need to see that. Yeah, it'll garner some skepticism. You might even get mocked for it. You might even get a new nickname. Praise the Lord. Um, but show your faith. That's Abraham. I think he's putting this faith on display. We move into verses 25 to 32, we see that Abraham showing his faith shows up particularly leading him to, to strive for peace. His faith leads him to strive for peace. Um, let me read verses 25 to 32 again for us here. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. 
So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham sent, uh, set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And he said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba. Beersheba sounds like the word for oath and also the word for seven, so it's just kind of a pun there. The place was called Beersheba because both of them swore an oath. And so they made a covenant at Beersheba, and Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. So Abraham agreed to make peace with Abimelech. Sure, let's, let's sign this peace treaty, this covenant together. Um, but in order for that to happen, um, there's kind of an issue at hand. We can't pretend like we're at peace when there's conflict. And so some of Abimelech's servants had seized a well of water that Abraham had dug. And remember, we're in the southern tip of Israel. This is dry, dusty country. A well is necessary for, for life. And the word seized there is a fairly violent term. It, it seems like these servants have, have come, maybe an armed attack. They have chased off Abraham's men. And so being asked for this covenant of peace uh, brings up this point of hostility. A lot of people wrestle with Abimelech's response. A lot of people are skeptical uh, of his response uh, or maybe think that it's insincere. I, I, I don't see any reason not to take it at face value. Um, I think Abimelech is just honestly saying, I didn't know. I wasn't told. After all, He's coming to Abraham seeking peace. If he had known about this, you'd think he would do something about it beforehand. Um, and, and I think the implication of his statement, I didn't know, you didn't tell me, uh, is that he's going to deal with it. And, and then Abraham seems to be satisfied with that answer because then he moves forward into this peace treaty, this covenant. Significant, I think, in the trajectory of, of, the, of Abraham's character. I think the Abraham of Genesis 12, maybe even the Abraham of Genesis 20, would have done this differently. Would have wanted to avoid the conflict. Maybe would have found kind of a, a sneaky, underhanded way to, to get his well back or to trick Abimelech. But here, Abraham seeks peace. He speaks plainly and honestly to Abimelech. He's open about it. Hey, can this be resolved? And they make a, a covenant together. That's, that's verse 27, the, the sheep and the oxen, and then the technical term there, they cut a covenant. And so they divided those two animals into pieces and put them on either side of a path, and they walked together through the path saying, uh, if... If I break my side of the covenant, may this be done to me. And then verse 28, on top of that, Abraham uh, presents these seven ewe lambs out of his flock. Ewe lambs being the, the female lambs. Those are the valuable ones because they reproduce. This is not a regular part of the covenant. And, and so Abimelech asks, okay, we did this. This I expected. What's with the seven ewe lambs? Why have you brought those along, what does this mean? And Abraham says, the meaning of these seven ewe lambs is, is to be a witness for me that I dug this well. Abraham dug the well. It was his. And then he gave Abimelech seven ewe lambs as a witness that the well was his. Not only is Abraham approaching this kind of upfront, 
honest and open, but without Abimelech pursuing him or pressuring him, Abraham goes out of his way to take the hit personally to smooth things over. He, he, he's willing to sacrifice to settle this. It's a big part of Abraham living out his faith, is, is striving for peace to the point that he's willing to pay for his own well. Likewise, as we live out our faith, we ought to be peacemakers. We ought to be peacemakers because, because our God is a peacemaker. We want to follow him, then, then we need to go the way that he's going. And, and, and our God is a maker of peace. Matthew 5, 9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Why do you get called a son of God? Um, I got called a son of my father a lot. Um, there's some strong Anderson genes. I could walk through the town of Bonneville and more than once would have one, someone say, you're Al Anderson's kid, aren't you? <laughs> Depends. Uh, yeah, because I look like my father, because I sound like my father. Jesus is saying, peacemakers, those who bring peace, people are going to come to them and say, hey, you're, you're Yahweh's kid, aren't you? You're like him. You have the traits that he has. You're a, a peacemaker like your father. James 3, 17, 18. Wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What a, what a needed passage for us today. We are so quick to be quarrelsome. We are so quick to argue and fight, be aggressive, be divisive. Our conversations are so easily filled with vitriol and belligerence. There's this lack of ability to, to even communicate with people that disagree with us. We just write them off. We don't want to talk to them. They're crazy. And I hate to say it, but I hear so many who even call themselves Christians doing this very thing even within the Christian community. These self-appointed heresy watchdogs. There's nothing wrong with defending the truth. We ought to contend for the truth once and for all, hand it down to the saints, absolutely. But we so easily become bloodthirsty. We're just looking for it. We're, we're catching little sound bites and snippets. As soon as they say the wrong word that's connected to something else, we pounce on them. And we, we write them off. Oh, they're part of this group that we've already discarded. And they're part of that group. And we want nothing to, to do with them. We don't stop to listen. We don't seek to understand. We don't give them the, the benefit of the doubt in love. I wonder why they would say that. What did they mean by that? Let me understand. How did you get there? What did you mean by those words? We just cut them off. Heretics. As children of our Father, we should not be this way. It shouldn't be us. Um, it's all through Proverbs. Proverbs 26, 21. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. Not good. Proverbs 16.32 Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. 
And he who rules his spirit than he who takes the city. Man, we want to be mighty. We want to be the strong. We want to be the unshakable. We want to, we want to win every conversation that we're in. God says, no, it would be better to be slow to anger and passive and quiet than to win. Better than to be mighty. Proverbs 20, verse 3. It's an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. Ouch. Man, I had to, I had to unplug from Facebook entirely. I don't know, it's been years now. I got I unplugged for Christmas. I just need a Christmas of peace. Uh, I never went back on. Why? Because I'm up at night. Because someone on the internet is wrong. I, I can't sleep until it's settled and they understand. Like, it's not healthy. It's not good. There's a fool quarreling. Even defending the truth, it doesn't matter. It was quarrelsome and argumentative and unhelpful. Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. I'm not here to learn about you. I'm here to tell you what's right. The list could go on of Proverbs as we interact with our world around us and then also with one another. Social media and, and personal conversations, we should be the ones who are calm and collected, who are reasonable, who are slow to judge. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, quick to to seek understanding and to show grace. Eager to believe the best about people, even people with whom we disagree. Not not mocking and disregarding, but but, but humbly seeking to understand and, and engage. And then when we're personally wronged, when there's an offense like there was between Abraham and Abimelech, We should be like Abraham is here. Go to the person involved. Speak openly and honestly and directly to the one in question. This is clearly commanded by Jesus. Uh, He knew this would be trouble for us. He knew this would be hard. And so he gave us this roadmap. He says, this is how you do it. Matthew 18, 15 to 17. This is unbelievably concise and and clear and full. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if you refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. So someone offends you. Someone sins against you. Step number one, go and talk to your friends about him and tell him how bad he is. No, no. Sit and stew about it. Be angry and bitter and just cut him off. No. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. The the basic principle of this is is as, uh, as small, as privately as possible, right? Now, if that doesn't work and there's still conflict, then you, then you bring in another witness. Maybe that witness says to you, yeah, you're out of line. Yeah, that's not sin. You're, you've read that wrong. Maybe that witness joins you and, and, and together you're able to, to show that brother, yeah, you've sinned and you need to repent. If that continues to escalate and the person is absolutely unrepentant of their sin, it rises to the level of what we call church discipline. 
supposed to treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector, but I always like to make the, uh, the, the comment, how do you treat a Gentile or a tax collector? Shun them? No, they cannot come here. We don't talk to them. We don't know. No, we love them. We share the gospel with them. We want them to repent and, and join the body of Christ. We, we, we seek their restoration. But that's the first step. That's number one. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Just be honest. Deal with it. That's hard. That's scary. It's awkward. But that's what Jesus commands. And, and he commands it for, for good reason. That's, that's why in our membership covenant that every member of this church has literally signed on the dotted line, this is what we are going to do, um, includes this clause. It says, I will seek to maintain unity in the fellowship. I will neither criticize nor listen to criticism concerning any member of this body and will, when personally offended, speak directly and lovingly to those involved. I'm not going to criticize. I'm not going to listen to criticism. You come to me and say, hey, I have a problem with so-and-so. I'm going to say, go talk to them. Go talk to them. It's not with me. We need to go directly to the one involved. And again, it's, it is awkward. It is uncomfortable. But Jesus commanded it for a reason. Because this is how we protect and, and build and maintain the, the unity of the body, the unity of the church. I've seen this happen over and over again. Someone is offended. Somebody's upset. And they go to that person in humility and honesty, and it's met with repentance and forgiveness. You know what happens? Not, not only is that relationship, that, that division is healed, but that relationship grows deeper than it ever was before. It's powerful. Those, my closest friends in this church, the people that I'm, I'm closest to and and. There are specific people that I'm thinking of, and they're probably laughing to themselves because they know exactly who they are. They're the ones who have had the grace and the courage to come and talk to me and say, you sinned against me. You offended me in this. And, and, and we've had that conversation, and that's, and that's where relationships take root and grow. We have to be peacemakers like our father, like Abraham, reaching out. We're not going to just ignore this, not going to deal with it back door. We're, we're going to deal with it openly and honestly. But notice the second part there as well. Abraham didn't just go to Abimelech to seek peace. He was willing to sacrifice for peace. And that's an essential peace. He raises his concern to Abimelech. And then he, as the person offended, as the person who's been sinned against, brings a payment to cover the offense. He paid for it. This is the reality of forgiveness. It has a cost. When someone offends you, um, sometimes there's a financial cost. Maybe you're actually literally covering the, the cost of damages. But there's always an emotional cost, a relational cost. It hurt. I was in turmoil. I had pain and sorrow because of what you did to me. Who's going to pay for that? Who's going to make that right? Forgiveness is saying, I'll cover it. I will pay for the sin against me. I will, I will absolve you of that debt. I will absorb it. As North Americans, we like to talk about our rights, our, our justice. 
We often talk as if we want peace and reconciliation, but that conversation seems to hit a wall at a certain point because, well, justice still has to be done. You can't just let them off the hook. It's the principle of the matter. I would forgive, but they still have to pay. Like, Don't go too far with this whole forgiveness thing. I'm not going to give up my rights for it. That's exactly what the Lord asks you to do. That's exactly the cost that he asks us to pay. It's hard. Verse Corinthians 6, Paul's addressing this very issue in the church in Corinth. And there were disputes in the church, and rather than this openness and honesty and repentance and forgiveness, they were taking each other to court. They're suing each other. In verses 7 and 8 of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says this, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. The fact that it even got this far is already a fail. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? This was Abraham. That's what he was doing. He would rather pay for his own well than for there to be this outstanding quarreling and offense. The fact that the Corinthians were even arguing about it was already a fail. What's more important to you? This principle of the matter? That you get what's right, that justice is done? Or reconciliation and and unity in the church? Peace and harmony, harmony between you and your brother or your neighbor? And that applies on both sides of the argument. Sometimes the cost is in offering forgiveness, being willing to let it go. Sometimes the cost is in offering, is in asking for forgiveness. To ask for forgiveness means I'm willing to let my pride and my reputation pay for it, to bear the weight of admitting I was wrong. But I don't think I was wrong. But can you apologize? You, you, you caused damage, you made a rift, it, it hurt. Can you ask for forgiveness? Asking for forgiveness rather than defending and justifying myself. As Christians, we should rather be wronged. We should rather be taken advantage of. We should rather give up our rights than to allow quarrels and divisions to persist. That's hard. That's hard. Now, there are there are things that matter too much, right? There are, we, we need to deal with sin in the body. There needs to be repentance. There's truth that, that we're going to stand on, and we're not, we're not giving up on that. I'm not, I'm not saying we just concede to, to heresy. I'm saying we, we hold to it in love. But isn't that exactly what the Lord did for us? We sinned against Him. Justice demanded that we be punished absolutely rightfully. We deserved an eternity in hell for our sin. And in Christ, God took that penalty on himself so that we could be reconciled. He said, I'll pay for it. I'll cover the damages. We have to be children of our Father. We have to show our faith. We have to strive for peace. Uh, and then finally, the, the foundation of this, the, the hope that, that carries us through this, we ought to seek God's promise. Seek God's promise. The, the third point here um, kind of sets this passage in the larger context of uh, these chapters of the, the book of Genesis, of the, of the story of the Bible. This is what God is doing on the grander scale. 
Let me read verses 33 and 34 for us again. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. First glance, it seems like a bit of an odd detail. Um, He planted a tree. That's nice, I guess. Um, In reality, this is the climax of this little passage. This is what it's all about. Um, how How many of you have planted trees before? Some people planted trees. Yeah, okay, you know what I'm talking about. Um, I know Jared planted trees. I saw this picture of his crazy setup. He had this whole watering thing hooked up on his quad. Why? Because it takes work. Because you've got to care for them. You've got to tend to them. In planting a tree, partly Abraham is saying, I'm going to be here for a while. I'm setting up. Following question. Um, many of you have planted trees. That's great. How many of you have planted trees uh, on your neighbor's yard? What? <laughs> Nobody? You know, we don't do that. Right? You don't plant a tree in someone else's land. You don't, you don't look around and go, that's the perfect spot right in front of my neighbor's picture window. That's where I'll put the tree. By planting the tree, Abraham is declaring ownership, kind of. It's not his yet. He's still a sojourner. He's still a traveler passing through. But he's looking at the promised land. And he's saying, it's not mine yet, but I believe God's promise. It will be. He's he's scratching his name on it before it's even been given to him. He's planting this tree as a statement of faith. Beersheba is the very southern tip of the land of Israel. As you're reading through the prophets, you'll often hear the phrase from Dan to Beersheba. That means all of Israel. He's, He's right on the cusp. He's right on the edge of the promised land. And he's saying, God will be faithful. He's going to do it. Remember Genesis 12, um, God first called Abraham, and that call came with a series of promises. God promised that he would give him a land. God promised that he would give him offspring and make him a great nation. And God promised to bless him. And then God promised to bless the whole world through him. And, And it doesn't start with Abraham, right? Like God's, God's story is seamless. You can trace those promises right back to Genesis uh, chapter 1 through 3. It's right from creation. God created humanity. He put us in the Garden of Eden, this perfect land of, of peace and rest and joy. It was filled with everything, uh, every, every good thing and the blessing of God. And Adam and Eve sinned. They they rebelled against God. They forfeited that protection. They they forfeited it on behalf of the whole human race. But in that moment, God promised, this is not the end. There will be an offspring. This says um, about Eve. There will be a son born of a woman who will crush the head of the serpent, who will restore humanity back to a better than Garden of Eden world right? Back to a place of his peace and his provision and his presence. The whole story of the Bible is right there, from Eden to better than Eden. That's what it's about. And and as we come to these promises made to Abraham, um, we're, we're, we're watching God building these promises and working it out. Now, Abraham hasn't received 
any of these promises in their fullness. He doesn't have the the final answer. He's certainly not to the better than Eden part. But he has these little bits and pieces. He has these little deposits that come along the way. Abraham hasn't received God's fullness of blessing, but he has been blessed. He's been protected. He's been made wealthy. This little symbol of God saying, I will bless you. And there's an infinitely greater spiritual blessing to come. He's had the birth of Isaac. He received this promised offspring. Now, just the first, just the first in a long line of offspring that would eventually lead to the ultimate offspring, Jesus Christ, the coming Savior. He's the one who would crush the head of the serpent. Isaac doesn't fulfill that. He's not the the end of it. It's just one more piece along the puzzle as God is working out this grand story. And, of course, that offspring, Jesus, well, Isaac, maybe, let's start there, would lead to um, a, a greater offspring, right? A, a greater nation, but, but that's not the end of it. Through Jesus, through the ultimate offspring, we have the greater nation, the people of God, the, the redeemed people of God, people from every tribe and nation and language and tongue, the, the blessing through the offspring to the whole world. And so in making this treaty with Abimelech, Abraham has begun to be a blessing to the nations around him pointing forward to how the the salvation of Christ would bring people in from all nations. And so these promises are just, these little deposits are coming. It's this progression through Scripture. But what's he still lacking at this point? Which promise is is still waiting for even even a token of fulfillment? It's the land. He's been traveling. He's been wandering. He's seen it. A land of peace and provision in the presence of the Lord. It's coming. That was what's promised. And here, making this treaty with Abimelech and and planting this tamarisk tree in Beersheba at the very southern border of the land of Israel, Abraham is showing he's received the first deposit. This is is the beginning. This is is one of those little cracks in the door where God's blessing is starting to, to shine through. He's showing that he's now received the the first down payment of God's great promise. He doesn't have the fullness of it, not by any stretch, but he has faith. He's put his toe in the pool. He's seen the the first bud of spring that promises the fullness of summer is coming. And he lives out his faith, longing, hoping, trusting in the fulfillment of God's greater promise. Hebrews 11 talks about that. Turn, turn with me there. It's too long to throw up on the screen. I think it's helpful to um, put these right in front of us in your own Bible. Hebrews chapter 11. Of course, the great hall of faith. All of these uh, men and women who, who trusted the Lord. The book of Hebrews, uh, it, it works through Abel and then Enoch and then Noah. And it comes then to Abraham. Listen to what it says about Abraham, starting in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. That's, that's back when he was in Ur, he was called to a land, I will show you. And he, by faith, he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, in a foreign land, 
living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Why? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered, uh, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. Now he switches, he takes the whole thing. He's talking now about Abel and Enoch and, and Noah and Abraham. In 13 he says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Think Garden of Eden. They have been thinking, sorry, if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. All right, so Abraham is planting this tamarisk tree in Beersheba. He is looking, longing, trusting that God would one day give him a homeland. And he's not just looking at the piece of dirt in Israel. He's looking beyond that. That's, that's part of God's progress in fulfilling was the physical land of Israel. But, but Abraham, it says here, was looking for a heavenly country whose designer and builder is God himself. And so this tamarisk tree is one token of God's faithfulness as it builds the, the, the land of Israel under David is another. But the ultimate answer is, is this better than Garden of Eden future that awaits. Abraham's looking forward to that. A land filled to overflowing with God's peace, with God's provision, with God's presence. Abraham's looking forward to it. So are we. So are we. Abraham calls on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Again, just this statement of, of faith. He is unshaking, unshakable. He doesn't come and go. He is the everlasting God. We live a little further down the chain, right? We've seen more deposits of God's faithfulness being fulfilled. We live on the other side of, of Christ. The rescuer has, has come. We've seen We've seen God's promise working out in grand ways. We know the, the promised offspring by name. We see what Jesus did on the cross that, that Abraham could not even have fathomed. We see the true people of God being gathered from every tribe and tongue and nation. We ourselves are Gentiles brought into God's promise. And then we have the resurrection of Christ. We have the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. That's our tamarisk tree, right? Planted on the border of the promised land. The resurrection of Jesus, the, the new life that we have with the Holy Spirit in us, that, that's our de deposit. That's our first toe in the water of the new heavens and the new earth. This little taste of the promise to come. We, we have it, but not all the way yet. It's coming. It's coming. 
And the fullness of it, the, the completion of it is still waiting for that glorious day when, when Jesus returns and this earth is made new. And, and so we wait. We live in faithfulness like Abraham. Not hiding it, live it out loud. Show it. Striving for peace. I can, I can sacrifice my reputation here. I can be humbled here. Because there's a glory to come. There's a better day to come. And, and so we, we, we show our faith and we strive for peace, seeking God's promise with, with this confident hope in the everlasting God. His promises will not fail. That great and glorious day is ahead. Would you pray with me? Father, you are so faithful. You are so good. And you have been working out your glorious plan through the ages. And we stand in awe and wonder who you are. Help us, Lord. You have rescued us. You've called us your children. You've called us to holiness and conformity to the image of Christ. Help us to walk in that faithfully. To show it to those around us. Lord, help us to be peacemakers. God, you know we struggle with this. Make us gentle, peaceable, kind, humble, patient. Assuming the best, desiring restoration, reconciliation. We might be children of you. And God, fix our eyes, our hope, on the day of glory to come. Oh, Lord, there is uh, an eternity ahead. We get so worked up over the little things and the trials in this world, but this is not our home. We're just strangers and exiles here. Fix our eyes on the glory to come. That we might walk faithfully before you now and rejoice with you into eternity. Oh, God, be our strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.